Welcome to the April-May Forecast Direct. And I'm really excited about today's conversation. Uh, with me is Emile Vernier, who is a professor at MIT and has written a paper that uh, came to my attention, a really interesting paper that looks back at the 1918-1919 influenza pandemic and asks some of the economic questions that, uh, that we're asking ourselves today about the current pandemic. Uh, but also what is uh, quite interesting is Emil is a professor of finance. So going from finance, delving into COVID uh, and, uh, and the macro economy, uh, a kind of really interesting uh, convergence of, of areas there. So welcome Emil and thank you for joining us. Well, thanks so much, Terry. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Look forward to the conversation. Uh, so let's just start with this paper that caught my eye, uh, and it's called Pandemics Depress the Economy, Public Health Interventions Do Not, Evidence from the 1918 Flu. And it's, uh, of course, with your co-authors, uh, Sergio Correa and Stephen Luck. And as I mentioned, you came to this from finance. So um, Maybe you can give us a little background as to how you came to do this research and what was it that struck you as, as really kind of interesting here? Sure, absolutely. So I think in a way there's two parts or two ways to answer the question of how we sort of came to, to look at this question of the impact of public health interventions during the 1918 flu. Um, so most of my research focuses on the connection between financial markets and the macroeconomy and especially trying to understand how in some cases financial markets can lead to a buildup of risks that results in financial crises that you know, bring down the, the whole economy. And so in that line of research, one has to sort of think about externalities and issues of coordination problems in behavior. So for example, if I you know, go out and take out a mortgage um, and you know, I may potentially uh, become you know, too indebted uh, in, in a subsequent recession, like a lot of people did in you know, 2005, 2006, uh, uh, in the run-up to the 2008 crisis, I don't necessarily take into account the fact that you know, if I default, for example, if my home goes into foreclosure, that's not just bad for me, it's also bad uh, for my neighbors, it's bad for my local economy. Um, and so in thinking about financial crises, uh, there's all these issues of spillovers, externalities, uh, and you know, that require coordination and behavior. And so early in the pandemic, this is back in you know, January and February during the lockdowns in Wuhan and in Italy, I was thinking a lot about how the response to pandemic also requires thinking about externalities uh, and about coordination and behavior. So you know, for example, I think as we all know by now, during a pandemic, people don't necessarily take into account that their actions like you know, going on a shopping trip or going to work may have a negative spillover effect or you know, what economists call a negative externality um, on others because you might be carrying a virus and you might infect other people. Um, and you know, because of these types of externalities, um, you know, many people can become infected, um, you know, become ill, um, and you know, more people uh, may become infected than what is even necessary uh, to achieve herd immunity. Um, so this is what epidemiologists call epidemic overshoot. And so an epidemic, you know, that's kind of spins out of control um, is, of course, going to be very bad for, for the economy um, and is naturally going to, you know, lead, lead, lead to bad things. 
people aren't going to want to go to work. They're not going to want to go out and spend uh, if they're afraid of getting sick. Um, and so that's kind of where these, you know, the, the fact that there are these externalities, these spillovers, these, you know, uh, you know, uh, the fact that we're all kind of interconnected and our, our actions affect each other mean that there's, you know, potentially a role for coordination um, in, in a pandemic, like, you know, social distancing laws, social distancing policies that try to coordinate our behavior so that we don't sort of get too many infections at once and, and kind of are able to to flatten the curve as kind of uh, we've all learned, le learned by now. And so those were kind of the important you know, policy issues that we're still debating, but that were very much being debated back in February, March, uh, April of 2020 uh, around controlling the, the, the pandemic and sort of the costs and benefits of, of, of doing that. Um, and so that's sort of the, the kind of theoretical background uh, and kind of the relation to uh, some of my other work. There was also kind of a practical uh, more practical um, reason that we kind of got interested in the 1918 pandemic, which is in you know a lot of my work and other people's work on financial crises, um, people focus a lot on historical episodes. There just aren't that many financial crises. You know, uh, before the 2008 crisis in the U.S., there was the, the last major crisis uh, was in the Great Depression. So you kind of have to go back, uh, you know, almost 80 years to really have another major systemic crisis. And you know, fortunately, pandemics are similar. Uh, pandemics, you know, are, are even rarer than financial crises, luckily. Um, and so, you know, the closest parallel that we had to the coronavirus uh, pandemic is, you know, the 1918 pandemic. It's 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 far from a perfect parallel, but it was sort of the, the closest parallel. Um, and so, you know, as the pandemic uh, was was erupting, and we could see that it was going to also affect the U.S., we started looking into what the experience of the US was during the 1918 uh, pandemic. And, and that sort of historical perspective to, to finance and macro research led us sort of naturally to have a historical perspective uh, on, on kind of the macro effects of, of previous pandemics uh, and, and health policies. Yeah, and th that's a really uh, interesting period uh, to look at uh, as well. At the beginning of this pandemic, we knew very little about what happened in the economy then. And there was uh, one study comparing St. Louis and Philadelphia, but, but not, a lot, not a lot else. So the responses, the coordinating responses that you're interested in, those were on a citywide level and, uh, and they differed across the country. So maybe you can tell us a bit about what those were like and how they differ, if at all, from the statewide responses that we've had this year, this past right, year. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. So, um, you know, when the, the second wave of the 1918 pandemic uh, arrived in the US in late August of, of 1918, um, it first arrived in Boston and then kind of relatively quickly over the course of a few weeks spread throughout the Eastern seaboard down to New Orleans and then, you know, uh, across the West Coast and, and then inland. So the, the, the virus, the influenza virus spread kind of over about a month relatively quickly. Um, and, you know, different cities were, you know, uh, hearing, for example, about the high mortality that was happening in Boston and in Philadelphia, but there wasn't really a coordinated federal response. In fact, the US federal government was mostly focused on fighting World War I uh, and raising, you know, uh, financing and, 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 and uh, uh, 
uh, you know, uh, producing munitions to fight the war. Um, so there wasn't much kind of focus from the federal side. Um, and so cities had to really, really act uh, independently. Um, and cities responded, you know, in different ways. Some responded sort of relatively quickly and aggressively. Others responded more slowly, um, which, you know, the differences kind of are down to kind of a, a variety of reasons, much like today. Some of it is about information. So the cities that were hit relatively later in the pandemic, like cities on the West Coast, responded a bit more uh, quickly relative to their outbreaks, just because they, they had heard about how bad things were you know, in, on the East Coast in Boston, Philadelphia. Um, and, and so they, they decided to take action uh, more, more aggressively. Whereas other cities, you know, for example, also for local political reasons, um, didn't respond. And so in terms of the responses um, that, that you saw across cities, most of the major cities in the US um, implemented some form of public health intervention. So the most common ones were closures of schools, uh, closures of churches, um, closing down of, of places of sort of public amusement like theaters, movie theaters, saloons, dance halls, bars, cafes, hotels, kind of all of those types of public uh, places um, were closed in some cities. Um, um, uh, and some cities sort of closed all of these places. Uh, lots of cities also introduced public gathering bans um, to sort of prevent what today we would call super spreader uh, events. So, you know, examples include, for, uh, you know, the Liberty Loan uh, parades that were held uh, to raise financing for World War II. Some cities decided to call those off or, um, and, uh, whereas other cities kind of, you know, because they wanted to meet their Liberty Loan uh, targets actually didn't call them off and those resulted in you know mass spread. So Philadelphia being the most famous um, case. There were also other policies that are kind of are similar to what we've seen uh, today. So courts were closed, uh, federal, you know, state uh, courts were closed uh, much like they were today. Um, business uh, hours were, you know, staggered uh, in part to limit the number of people who were in public, uh, in, in public transit. So there was really kind of a, a broad range of policies that were applied um, for anywhere between one week uh, to 10 weeks with an average of about four to five weeks uh, across cities. Um, so, you know, comparing to the experience we've had today, you know, these were kind of uh, uh, in place for a relatively shorter amount of time. Um, so they were kind of in place for, you know, on average about a, a, about a month. In terms of, of kind of thinking about that question of how the policies compared to what we've seen today, I think we can, you can kind of see that there's some pretty clear parallels. There were, you know, closing of, of lots of these uh, um, uh, public places. They were sort of, you know, com compared to, for example, the closures of all non-essential businesses, they were less stringent. Um, and they were also, as I mentioned, of, of shorter duration. And I think the way to think about the comparison is really that in 1918, in large part, you know, the policies at best served to sort of mitigate the, the pandemic to prevent, you know, what epidemiologists today would call epidemic overshoot, that is preventing sort of too many people from getting infected relative to even what you would need for, for herd immunity. Whereas today there's been, you know, the policies have been used in part for mitigation, um, but also in some places, in some cases, uh, for suppression, or at least for the goal of suppression. I think back in March and April, it was a little bit unclear exactly what the US was doing. Were we just kind of trying to flatten the curve or were we really trying to suppress the virus like 
for example, uh, you know, other countries have done uh, like, you know, China or, or, or New Zealand or Australia. Um, and I, you know, I think essentially we've also ended up going for sort of a mitigation strategy, but where we really flattened the curve more and spread it out over a longer period of time than the 1918 pandemic, which uh, where these policies were in place for, for a month or two, uh, usually. And that was the explicit idea in California. The policy was to reduce the rate of infection so as to not overload the healthcare system. And, and if that meant spreading out the amount of time, that was considered a, a reasonable trade-off in terms of public health policy. Uh, one thing that strikes me that is actually somewhat similar that in 1918, these restrictions were on cities, not states, but people didn't move between cities very often. So you didn't have the kind of interaction that you now have between uh, Boston and New York and Philadelphia or San Francisco and, and LA and Orange County going on. So they're a little bit more isolated and maybe that uh, makes the shorter duration uh, kind of comparable, even though the time frame is a little bit different. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. I think cities were more isolated. There was relatively less mobility. You know, the car was still relatively uh, a recent, not so widespread, so people couldn't as easily travel. Uh, the flu, of course, did did travel across cities through the railroad network, for example. So there were, of course, you know, uh, the, the flu, of course, did kind of spread. A big part of the spread was also uh, uh, World War One troop movements. Mm -hmm. So you kind of see that, um, you know, the, the epidemic essentially peaks or is always, you know, a few weeks ahead in the military population relative to, to the civilian population and often military uh, 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 personnel who were, you know, being moved around to different bases, being sent to Europe um, would, would bring the infection to, you know, uh, a, a new place. And then it would sort of spread to the civilian population within um, a week or two. Um, but, but it's true, cities were relatively less connected than, than, they, than, than they are today, just kind of by virtue of, of transportation technology. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about your data. Uh, and that's an important issue today as to, you know, what, what does it mean to have these non-pharmaceutical interventions? Uh, one really useful piece of data or data series that I've been looking at is the Oxford University's measure of stringency of NPIs of non-pharmaceutical interventions. But if you look at it, it kind of moves all over. And just as for example, uh, the state of Michigan, very stringent, and then basically none. Or you have Texas that it turns out on the Oxford index, uh, Texas looks like they have a little bit above average, a little bit above median stringency in their interventions, but Texans don't really follow the intervention rules. So it's confined to you know, a few places such as Austin and Houston. Uh, and, and, and so using that data, um, it's reasonable data, but it is data that you have to be careful with. Uh, what, what about you know, the data that you used? How did you measure that stringency of uh, interventions and, and the variability over time 
of when the interventions came in and when they were eased? Right, no, I think that's a really good question. And a lot of the issues that come up that you mentioned, you know, also arise and you see in the data um, in 1918. So some cities, you know, closed, then opened up again and then closed down again. So St. Louis, for example, did this with their, with their schools. And so they kind of switch on, on and off. There's, we have evidence of kind of differences in rates of, of compliance as well. Um, so in terms of where the data are, are from on the non-pharmaceutical interventions, here we're kind of building on um, a, a kind of large effort by a, a group of epidemiology researchers um, led by H Howard Markle and his co-authors that essentially back in 2006 got together and sort of combed through uh, public health uh, uh, notices, newspaper reports uh, for the 43 largest cities in the United States and essentially recorded you know, all of the, the, the start dates and policies that were in place um, and grouped them into different categories. So um, they recorded, for example, you know, when schools were closed in, in, each, in each city, um, you know, whether cities had public gathering bans, whether they had other types of, of closures that were mandated. Um, and those, you know, those types of policies like school and church closures are relatively uh, sort of you know, objective to, to, to measure. Um, there's other kind of policies, for example, uh, uh, mask ordinances, where there's lots of evidence that there was, uh, you know, compliance among some, but also lots of opposition to it as well. So just to give you an interesting uh, story, uh, uh, there was a lot of debate about, you know, whether masks were useful in 1918 as well. And actually, San Francisco was one of the cities um, that, you know, where the local public health director kind of was a big believer that masks would, would slow the spread of influenza. Um, and so he had, there was a mask ordinance that was put in place um, that was then lifted in November. But then as the flu came back in December in San Francisco, uh, in December of 1918, they wanted to put it in place again. And, and there were some people who were just so fed up with wearing masks that there was actually an anti-masking league that was started uh, essentially you know, in opposition to the fact that you know, this, was, this went against uh, you know, people's civil liberties. And so you do sort of see this evidence of lack of compliance um, with, uh, with some of these policies. And so that sort of makes, as you said, you know, for today, um, makes measuring the incidence of, of these policies imperfect, but they kind of give a, 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 an approximate sense of how stringent uh, or not kind of different cities, um, uh, different cities kind of intervened. And what the epidemiology studies that I mentioned before generally find um, which sort of supports the idea that these, these policies were useful uh, is that the cities that were more aggressive um, in, in their policies were able to reduce their peak mortality, that is the, the, the highest rate of mortality in a given week um, by 40 to 50%. Um, and so they were kind of able to flatten the curve. Uh, and to some extent, they pushed deaths further out into the future, so further into you know, from October of 1918 to uh, November of 1918 and, and even December of 1918. Um, but they didn't push all the deaths into the future. So if you sort of look at the data, it looks like uh, total mortality uh, was reduced by about maybe 15, 20% in the cities that intervened uh, more aggressively. So it does, it does look like these policies you know, had some effect, 
um, but they were they in the major U.S. cities. They you know they were far from perfect. There were some are some smaller cities in the U.S. that aren't in our data, um, where you know there's evidence that essentially the cities were able to keep out outsiders through sort of uh, uh, protective sequestration, as some people call it, uh, and were able to avoid the flu getting in, and so managed to to, to escape entirely. Australia had a naval uh, quarantine and actually managed to escape, escape the worst of the 1918 pandemic um, because of that. But but for the most part, you know, for major U.S. cities, that wasn't that wasn't the case. So it seems that politics always enters into both public health and economics. Uh, Absolutely. I, mean, I was reading that the U.S. wanted to follow the Australian model, and there was political blowback saying, no, the Doughboys need to go home. They've been in Europe. Let's let them go home. And that, that was part of a, a super spreader kind of policy. Yeah. Yeah. And within, and, and you kind of, in reading the history, you see the, the tension between public health experts uh, that, for example, you know, asked for troop movements to be suspended in October uh, of 1918, at the same time as, you know, the U.S. government is fully focused on sort of finishing, uh, uh, finishing the war, and kind of there's some rumors that the you know armistice may be relatively uh, close at hand, um, and so you know, the public health experts are often not able to get their uh, advice kind of passed through because of other considerations. You see the same, for example, local public health experts in Philadelphia, um, you know, were warning against having the Liberty Loan Parade, but again. Uh, you know that we mentioned, we talked about before, but again, policy sort sort of uh, politics intervenes, and there was lots of opposition to these uh, to these policies. Um, you know, especially from, for example, local businesses who you know worried that it was going to hurt their revenues. So uh, uh, definitely, politics uh, uh, intervened with with public health. Yeah. So the the bottom line in your research is that. These public health interventions, they not only lead to better health outcomes, but also better economic outcomes. And yet the discussion in the US uh, is certainly about there's a trade-off between public health outcomes and economic outcomes. So how did you reconcile that this actually occurred in the 1918-1919 timeframe? Right, so you know, that's exactly right. And we were, as we were working on this in February and March of 2020, there was lots of discussion of how well, you know, the cure can't be worse than, than the disease, you know, having these social distancing laws can't completely, you know, we, we can't sacrifice our economy completely, you know, we, we have to kind of balance this trade-off. Um, and of course, we sort of thought to ourselves, well, you know, if you think about it, there doesn't have to be a trade-off because if you can control the pandemic, that's of course also gonna have some benefits for the economy. And so what we did was we collected data on city level um, measures of economic disruptions um, that are put out by a, a, a trade journal at the time called Bradstreets that recorded sort of how, how different cities were doing. Um, and what we found is that in the short run, so during uh, the fall of 1918, the cities that intervened more aggressively and were able to flatten the mortality curve actually don't do uh, sort of meaningfully clearly worse in their economic performance kind of in the fall of 1918 as they have these policies in place. And then if you look to the year after the worst of the pandemic, so if you look uh, to 1919, 
you see that actually, you know, if anything, the cities that intervened more aggressively actually have higher economic activity, um, uh, you know, relative to before the pandemic uh, than the cities that intervened less less aggressively. Um, so, you know, I, the way we, we we interpret the results, sort of, we try to be somewhat cautious uh, and, and 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 interpret it as saying that. You know, there's not really clear evidence that there's a strong trade-off between health and, and, and the economy. And you know, the, the, our rationalization for this, and, and there's lots of historical kind of narrative evidence that's consistent with this, is that you know, the recession itself and the, the pandemic itself and the disruption that it caused um, you know, is itself very disruptive. And so you know, using these policies that sort of uh, coordinate behavior and are able to flatten the curve, they can actually sort of have indirect benefits for the economy, even though, of course, directly they're, they're, they're reducing economic activity. Indirectly, by slowing the spread of the virus, um, it mitigates the amount of, you know, both health, you know, direct illness and mortality, um, but also the fear and panic that, that arose um, because of, of kind of the, uh, just how severe this, this virus was. So just to give you kind of a concrete example of, of sort of uh, the direct effects of the, of the virus. So in Philadelphia, which we talked about you know, before, which was a city that you know, on the spectr spectrum of, of interventions was one of the least aggressive, intervened relatively late and saw very high mortality. Um, you know, in the first half of, of October, um, you know, over 800 employees at the Bell Telephone Company in Philadelphia stayed home from work, either because they were sick um, or because they were too afraid uh, to go to work because they were afraid of, of getting sick. And a, a, as a result of, of so many, uh, uh, so much absenteeism, so many employees staying home, the company actually um, took out a full page ad in the Philadelphia Inquirer, basically asking people to only use the, the phone they could only process uh, phone calls for, you know, uh, essential calls that were either, you know, related to the war uh, or that were, you know, uh, were essential because of the, of, of the pandemic. Um, and so it's kind of, you have lots of examples of business being completely disrupted by all of the illness, all of the fear, all of the panic. And the cities that were able to kind of flatten the curve, they were also able to some extent to mitigate um, this, you know, these severe disruptions that come from you know, just such high rates of, of illness and, and mortality. And I think what you've seen in, in 2020, and there's, you know, a, a fair amount of research that, that seems to find this is that, you know, the places, the countries um, and the cities, uh, states in the US that, you know, intervened more aggressively and had, you know, more stringent social distancing policies or, or lockdowns didn't tend to do so much worse um, and some of them actually even did better uh, economically. Um, and I think it's you know, a similar, similar argument that the, the virus itself, the pandemic itself leads to a lot of fear and disruption. Um, and so in some sense, um, you know, using policies that, that, that slow the spread can mitigate those negative economic consequences of the virus uh, itself. I think that's right. I've been looking at data uh, for the US and, and coming up with the same conclusion, and also Scandinavia, although it's a small number of countries, uh, early on, it was the discussion was that Sweden was choosing a more open economy, 
uh, and less public health intervention, but it appears that the same results that you found are true there that other countries in Scandinavia, Iceland excluded because it's so heavily dependent on international tourism. Uh, Sweden had no better economic outcomes and, and, and actually on average worse and worse health outcomes. And I think what you've just described is both the demand and supply response, right? The supply because workers were afraid to come to work or they were ill and a demand because people were afraid to go and buy those services. Exactly, yeah, no, I think that that's been one of the interesting things in, in the pandemic is it's such a, it's a different type of shock and recession from what we're used to and, and, and exactly it operates on both demand and, and supply side. So, and in, in Sweden, for example, what you've seen is, you know, that um, while some people have used the opportunity uh, to you know, go to bars, go to restaurants because they weren't you know, closed down or at least in the spring of 2020 weren't closed down. Lots of other people you know, became even more afraid uh, and actually uh, decided to, to, to stay away. Um, and so uh, you know, uh, by basically controlling the, uh, the virus, like for example, Norway did or Denmark did I think more successfully than, than Sweden, actually you're kind of able to uh, keep you know, those people who are really afraid uh, from kind of becoming, uh, reducing their demand so much. And so there's some really nice research from that compares Denmark and Sweden and actually uses individual level spending data that shows exactly that in Denmark, what you see is that the more stringent lockdown uh, policies depress the consumption of sort of uh, young people, for example, who are probably less afraid of, of, of the virus, you know, by the time kind of people realized that mortality for younger people wasn't, wasn't you know, that high. But actually you see that uh, for, for older people, uh, you have the opposite. You have that older people in Sweden really reduce their, their, their spending and especially spending that required, you know, going out, um, you know, into large uh, crowded stores or, you know, going out uh, for, uh, to a restaurant um, because of that sort of fear. Um, of, of the virus, and 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 that's why, uh, sort of these these policies, you know, don't translate uh, necessarily one for one in, into a trade off because people kind of are going to respond to the environment that they're in. Right. So, let's turn back to your uh, major field of interest, finance. Uh, there's the Biden administration put through a 1.9 trillion dollar uh, support and stimulus package. Uh, the Fed is flooding the market with liquidity through QE. Uh, that is intended to stabilize the macro economy, but you study financial crises. Is this also leading to a potential financial crisis? What, what is your view of this uh, macroeconomic intervention as opposed to uh, non-pharmaceutical intervention? Yeah, that's that's an interesting question, and here there's there's I think even more limited historical parallels because, you know, as we've touched on before, this really is different from all other um, recessions, and you know, uh, uh, this recession is is a recession that's you know driven very clearly by a pandemic, and it's kind of it's interesting. I always say this: it's rare that we have a recession where we understand the root source of it so well. Uh, as this recession, you know, normally 
in 2008 with the financial crisis, we were debating, you know, was it, was it you know, the housing market? Was it the banks? Was it both? Was it, you know, oil, oil prices? Uh, you know, lots of different factors here. It's relatively uh, straightforward. Um, but at the same time, we don't have as much ex experience kind of in thinking about this macro environment. The way I, I think about the, uh, all the stimulus that we've seen is I think of it less uh, as stimulus and more as relief um, for people uh, who, you know, uh, have lost income because of, because of the, the pandemic. Um, and, you know, we know that the impacts of the pandemic have been very different for different people in different occupations. There's been, you know, uh, lots of, of, uh, of inequality in that dimension. And so I think this stimulus in some ways, you know, is a relatively imprecise tool for targeting the people who really need the help. But, you know, it has provided crucial relief uh, to lots of families. Lots of other people have taken that stimulus um, and, you know, just, just saved it. So we've also, for example, seen very, very high saving, saving rates. Um, I saw a recent comparison actually um, uh, to World War II, which is actually a, an interesting comparison because World War II also saw very high uh, private saving, saving rates. Um, and, you know, people's consumption was, was suppressed. Uh, during the war, uh, and the estimates of fiscal stimulus, you know, are, are tend to be smaller. Uh, the effectiveness of fiscal stimulus, or the multiplier on, on on public spending that people estimate, tends to be smaller if you look at World War II. And I think we're a little bit in, in a situation like that, where the effects of the stimulus, uh, at least you know during the pandemic, uh, are smaller uh, than they would be during normal times or, or during a normal recession where we sent out checks because lots of people are just gonna you know, save the money. They're not ready to go out and spend yet. And I think you know, once the virus really comes completely under or much more under control, which is you know, hopefully kind of happening now as vaccinations are really uh, uh, you know, picking up and you know, uh, around half of Americans as you know, today we're speaking uh, have received at least one dose. I think we're gonna start to see uh, some of the stimulus maybe generate more of an economic kind of kick um, and I think that that will that will, you know, hopefully lead to a strong, uh, and I think will lead to a strong recovery. Um, and so then we kind of get into the questions of whether you know maybe the stimulus has actually been too large, um, and 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 there's some interesting uh, interesting questions around that we can we can talk to. I think we may end up uh, uh, realizing that the the stimulus was quite large, you know, uh, especially relative to the to the output gap. Um, and that may lead to some kind of inflationary pressures on the other side. But I also think that we're kind of in a position where it's it's probably better uh, to be bold and to try too much than 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 try too little. And we, in fact, don't have any empirical evidence to support the view that it's too large. That's just speculative, right? Well, I think the 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 people who say that the stimulus is too large make I think the reasonable observation that if you look sort of relative to the output gap um, then the amount of stimulus if you put together sort of the stimulus from from uh, from from December with this 1.9 billion package and then potentially also an infrastructure package uh, would amount uh, you know would be several times larger than the actual output gap um, in in the economy 
Um, and so in some sense, whereas for example, in 2008, the stimulus you know, was about uh, you know, a third to a half the size of the output cap, depending on how you measure it. Um, today, the stimulus uh, is you know, larger and, 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 and you know, several times larger than the output cap, depending on your exact estimate. And so that suggests that it, it is really quite a large um, stimulus. If I, if I can kind of think back you know, to, to, to the policy interventions that we've had, I think you know, the relief that we've provided has been very important. I would have liked to see relatively more spending on controlling the, 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 the pandemic, especially early on during the summer. I think that the uh, more money could have gone into um, scaling up testing uh, and sort of using testing and tracing more effectively to kind of slow the spread. I think that would have that would have helped the economy open up um, more quickly. Um, and I think kind of with the most recent uh, debate about stimulus, I think I'm more positive about the stimulus that focuses on kind of building up infrastructure and also thinking about meeting longer term challenges um, than you know uh, 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 kind of uh, uh, stimulus you know sending out checks and so on, which I think, while important for some families, is a pretty, you know, imprecise tool uh, for dealing with, with the, the pandemic, given, you know, how, how dispersed the consequences of the pandemic have been, and how some people, you know, really haven't seen much income loss, whereas it's been devastating for, for others. So this has been really interesting. We're just about out of time, but, uh, you know, the way in which finance and uh, the disparate response to the pandemic and the economic consequences, it, it's not obvious that it's the same as people were saying in the beginning. And uh, so your research is both quite interesting and very, very much revealing. So on behalf of UCLA and the Anderson School and the Anderson Forecast, I want to thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to be with you.